0: Alright, so the book of Zechariah. We continue in our last three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi today. Alright, so uh, timeline for us. You can see that we have very similar timelines what we had for, for Haggai. And so the temple construction then stopped from 535 to 520. Zechariah prophesies to the return of exiles, 520 to 515. The temple's temple is completed at 515. So we definitely have some, some overlap with them. We obviously are going to be in the same um, empire time zone, so who is the world power? Persia. Persia is still the world power, that is correct. And the uh, areas that are mentioned okay, in the book, some significant areas, you can see there's quite a few more than last time. This is going to be in part because there is uh, some judgment oracles that are mentioned, and so these are the nations that are going to be uh, mentioned in those oracles that God is going to judge. Alright, the title of the author is not a formal title. Uh, Zechariah means Yahweh has remembered. Um, Zechariah is actually a very common name. There's at least 27 different occurrences of it throughout the Old Testament. He was grandson of Edo of Nehemiah 12.4, a contemporary of Zerubbabel. So that gives us another relational connection with what's going on in Ezra Nehemiah and the man Zerubbabel. He is a youth according to Zechariah 2.4 now youth you might think um, preteen or teen but youth is probably more like um, late teen uh, era in the 8th month in the 2nd year of Darius the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah son of Berechiah son of Edo in Zechariah 1.1 1, 1. that sets us up with the same time period as Haggai. We're in the second year of King Darius. Alright, we have uh, about two months after, so if you want to make the connection, this is two months after Haggai chapter 1. The author, Zechariah was both prophet and priest, just like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. appears to have survived, um, Joshua, the high priest, as he became head of his own division of priests in the days of Jehoiakim, son of Joshua. became a leading priest in the restoration community, succeeding his ancestor or grandfather Edo. His father, Barakiah, doesn't seem to have become very prominent. Now, we don't know why or anything like that, but one of the things when they try and trace people in the Bible is that, you know, God has his ways, and you could have one person, one brother, for instance, who may become more well known. David, for instance, he had multiple brothers, but who do we remember? David. I mean, name me one of David's brothers. Anybody? Can you? No, but they're actually listed, right? A bunch of them are. So, anyways, but David becomes the one that God is doing a work through, and, and that's you know who becomes known. Um, SPSU in the scriptures, right? So, according to some ancient versions, Zechariah was also a poet. He's mentioned the titles of several psalms in the Septuagint, for instance, the Vulgate, that's the Latin Vulgate, so the Latin translations, and in the Syriac. Okay? So there are additional um, things we can sometimes learn. We don't only study comparative cultural things, like in OT backgrounds, but actually this coincides with what we talked about this morning in OT Backgrounds with the Aramaic Targums, etc. Our English scriptures are primarily, and I stress primarily, based off the Hebrew and Greek. However, they also compare to the scripture traditions elsewhere. So, the Syriac Peshitta, or Peshitta, however you say that word, right? One way sounds probably better than the other. But anyways, those, the Aramaic Targums and other in the Septuagint, okay? So you've got three other language traditions of Scripture outside of your traditional Greek and Hebrew. right? So let's say you're reading the Syriac. These are Eastern Christians. They've had the Syriac for thousands of years, and their Bible translates something differently than ours does. And this isn't a new thing. They've had their Bible for thousands of years, like I said. And so you look at that, and you look back, and you're like, okay, the Syriac says that, the Aramaic says that, the Greek says that, and the Hebrew says that. Why is there a variance here? And what's the most accurate way to approach this text? So that's what that's what's going on there, all right? Um, <clears throat> so the date. He began preaching in uh, the eighth month of 520 BC. We can learn that from 1-1. And um, as I just mentioned earlier, it's not on the slide right here, but that's about two months after uh, Haggai 1. Okay, His eight-night visions occurred three months later in 520 B.C. Chapters 7 and 8 occur in 518 B.C., so that would be two years later. The last dated prophecy is around 518 in chapter 7, about two years after rebuilding campaign with Haggai in 520. Now, chapters 9 to 14 is where it gets sticky. They seem to be composed after 480 due to references to Greece in 9.13. Um, I'm going to give you a few options here in a moment. You don't have to decide on any of them. I mean, I'm just throwing them out there so that you understand that there's some debate on this. Chapters 9 through 14 have basically two theories. One is the pre-exile theory. And this is that Zechariah 11, 12 to 13 is quoted in Matthew 27 as a prophecy by Jeremiah. That's the support for this. 9.1-2 um, mentions Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamath as independent countries. Therefore, the book should be written prior to the conquest of Syria by Tiglath-Pileser in seven twenty-two or 7.32. Zechariah 11.14 envisions the possibility of brotherhood between Israel and Judah. So that would have to be before 7.22 because there can't be any brotherhood after Israel is taken captive by Assyria. Zechariah 10.10-11 refers to Assyria as an independent power. So it would, therefore, in this line of thinking, be prior to 6.12, right? And Zechariah 10, 1-4 seems to indicate pre-exile as it refers to the teraphim and the diviners, uh, which post-exilic Judah did not resurrect. So there's this idolatrous stuff that didn't come back after the exile. So those are all supporting reasons for why the book would probably be written um, before the exile. Then, there is an argument for after Alexander. <coughs> 9.13 mentions the sons of Javen or Greece, indicating a date when the Greeks um, are, were already in the ancient Near East. So, it had to be after 330 BC, if you go with that. Um, 9.1 and 2 refers to provinces that were conquered by Alexander. So, Greece was already a reigning empire. Same thing for 11.14. And then eleven refers to the good shepherd, identifies with Ananias, and an evil shepherd with uh, that should be Menelaus there, I think. And Zechariah nine to fourteen differs from one through eight, so it must be distinct in character. Now you should already know at this point that anytime someone says that there is a difference in the literary style, therefore it must be. That should be like a question mark with a red flag. Like it might be, but it doesn't must be. You with me? Yeah. So. <clears throat> so the dates range from two eighty to, to one forty BC. Okay, so I mean we're not gonna solve this. I'm I'm just laying stuff out for you. So the the section that's debated is is nine to fourteen concerning the book of, of Zechariah. Alright. So the restoration chronology. You've seen this chart before uh, when we're looking at Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. So this chart goes well with both them and the, the prophetic books we're looking at today, because they all they coincide and they overlap well um, together. So again, um, the date on Zechariah of 520 with a question mark is because of what we just talked about, okay? But so Ezra 1 to 6, okay, and the, the exiles return stop working on the temple, and Haggai and Zechariah come in and take you back to work. All right? Then Esther takes place, then the rest of Ezra, 7-10, to 10, and then Nehemiah, and then after Nehemiah is Malachi. Well, when we get to Malachi, we'll talk about that as well. There's some disputed information about the date there. but So that would be the general chronology that we're looking at. The historical context is that this is the second post-exilic prophetical book. The historical background and audience are the same as those for Haggai, So as Zechariah's contemporaries looked back, they saw the former glory and the recent shame. As they looked forward, they saw a difficulty and felt discouraged. Zechariah ministered to inspire hope in the heart of this discouraged remnant of Israelites. That was his purpose. Prop them up, inspire them, give them hope, etc. The messages of the book, The, the first was delivered between Haggai's first and second message. Same purpose, finish the temple. So Haggai says, get up, finish the temple. And then Zechariah says, "Get up, finish the temple." And then Aggie says, "Get up, finish the temple." Right. Um, secondly, though, there's eight visions to inspire hope. Okay, there's a future, so get building. All is not what it appears. Right. Um, people need hope. You know, suicide is because of lack of hope. Um, people get depressed. Everybody gets depressed. I mean, we lose hope. You know, what, what keeps you going? And so here. God is encouraging them to keep going. There is a future. God is still going to do something. Everything is not over. You came back to what looks like nothing, but God will take nothing and turn it into you know, something. Um, 1, 1 to 3, and especially 1, 3 is, is key. Everything that follows, illustrates, and applies the promises of, of 1, 3. In 1, 3 we read that God says, Tell the people this is what the Lord of hosts says. Return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts shows up a lot in Zechariah. So, return to me, and I will return to you. So, that's a a key aspect to this book. Uh, And next, there are two oracles in chapters 9 through 14, demonstrating the pervasive power of the Lord of hosts, and the king to be rejected, but will be resurrected and returned. Okay? The prophetic aspect, messianic aspect about Jesus, the king, being rejected. Okay, so the, the dates, again, for Haggai and Zechariah. Um, dates of key events in Haggai and Zechariah's time. So um, Haggai's first sermon, okay? The temple building is resumed. Um, Haggai's second sermon, and Zechariah's ministry. Now, these are, we just said he actually preaches in between his first and the second. So um, those are, just put them together. Haggai's third and fourth. Zechariah's eight visions, the delegation from Bethel, and then the temple is de- dedicated at the end. So you can see how these, these fit together, okay? And remember, with everything we always say, especially studying Old Testament stuff, um, you look at ten scholars, they're probably going to have some variance <laughs> with their dates. And if you if you move, especially with Haggai and Zechariah, if you, if you move something off a, uh, a little bit, you might switch a chapter with one of them. This is, um, well, this is actually the the same basically. It's just set up differently. But if you look at the at the bottom here, Haggai focuses on the outward task of rebuilding the temple, whereas Zechariah focuses on the inward task of rebuilding the remnant spiritually. Um, Haggai centers primarily around the immediate local situation, whereas is more universal in scope with an eschatological, uh, future end times type, of thinking that he's trying to um, build. So. I could just use this chart and eliminate the, f- the first one that, that I put in there. All right Along with that in the theological context that goes with it, this uh, sometimes called the apocalypse of the Old Testament due to its unveiling of Israel's future and the Messiah. Uh, the whole last portion of the book has a lot of messianic overtones and messianic uh, prophecies that are part of it. Some of the themes that are related to that is the revelation of the pervasive power and persistent purpose of God. That phrase is from Tom Constable. God will preserve a remnant in Israel. The Gentile nations will be punished. He'll reveal himself, that the repent and return thing, and, he'll, and I will return to you. That's from 1.3. Um, and the Lord of hosts. Okay, As I mentioned, Lord of hosts is pretty prominent. The first occurrence of the phrase is in First Samuel, and it rarely occurs in the historical books. Um, But it's very common in the prophetic books, but more so in Zechariah than any other. At least 35 times. Okay? Um, That is a lot for a book that's, uh, what, 14 chapters long? So uh, three times in the first three verses it shows up. All right? That's the intro of the book. Three times in the first three verses. Additionally, the theme of the Messiah. J. Barton Payne finds 78 predictions in Zechariah that involve 144 verses, 69% of the book. So, uh, obviously I haven't checked them. But if that's the case, um, and even if it's only a portion of that, the point is that the the book is heavy on the, the theme of the Messiah. Now, the book is also known for its strange images. Okay, now that's just a rendi- rendition, obviously, of someone's artistry of what it says. But strange objects fill the visions, given Zechariah. Here a woman representing evil peers from a measuring basket that represents wickedness. So the evil woman peering out of a, a wicked basket, a wicked wicker basket maybe, I don't know. Anyways, behind the basket a golden lampstand uh, is taken from a different vision and represents light shed by the Spirit of God who empowers his people to do what is right and good. So... There's a lot of unusual visions, and that's out of uh, uh, Lawrence Richards, Larry Richards' book, uh, The Bible Reader's Companion. Which I've mentioned that book to you in the past. Um, it's one of those books that I would say, you know, if you can only get a couple of books, uh, that would be one. And I think it, I think it's pretty cheap, like maybe ten or twelve bucks online. But it goes through the whole Bible and it kind of covers it um, chapterish at a time, um, but has some has some good insight. Alright, so picking up with Dan Malhouse again with Zechariah the idea of Jerusalem and Zion is also big you can see here the number of occurrences of it, 41 times and 8 times, uh, represented as the dwelling place of God's people, although he has rejected them in the past, he will now again accept them and live in the midst of them once more, so Jerusalem is used in two senses uh, the first, the city that was rebuilt after the exiles returned, chapter 1-8. Um, you can see that here in eight fifteen. So I have again prop, uh, proposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem. And then the city that will be the dwelling place for the Lord's people who will accept the coming Christ. This is the future eschatological aspect and in, in that day, the phrase, 9-14. to 14. It will come about in that day I will pour out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace. So there's this future aspect. So Doug Stewart says that in regards to this idea of the last day, Doug Stewart lists uh, seven different things. This will not be in the slides. But he lists uh, seven different things related to the last days or the the end times. Uh, One is the uh, uh, tribulation aspect. There's the judgment on the oppressors, there is persecution, false teachers, etc. All that together. So Tribulation, but there's also this, this oppression, this, this judgment, all this coming together. So there's an aspect of tribulation um, that's going on. Opposition to the kingdom of God. That's, that's, that's what it is. The, secondly, he says there's this returning to the Lord. There's some people that return to the Lord. And uh, we actually just saw how in Zechariah, God says, if you'll return to me, I'll, I'll return to you. There is an aspect of uh, messianic victory. Okay? That God is going to do something. There's going to be a victory for the Messiah. There's an aspect of the saints being raised. You get uh, a foretaste of this, Doug Stewart would argue, um, at Jesus' resurrection. When the saints who had already died, they are resurrected. He says that's just a glimpse into what it will be. Um, There is the New Covenant. So that's picked up in multiple other places. Jesus at the Lord's Supper, or the Last Supper, um, talks about the, the blood of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. There is the new kingdom with the Davidic king. Again, Jesus being that Davidic king. And there is the idea of many Gentiles being delivered. Uh, Zechariah talking about all the nations coming to worship him, um, etc. So these seven aspects, um, Doug Stewart says, are related to the. The end times, the latter, the latter days, in in the books that we're we're looking at here today. <clears throat> in the New Testament, Zechariah is referred to fifty-seven times. Um, it says sampling on the next slide, but you know I'm a little bit ridiculous, so once I started, I had to finish. So you probably won't be able to read them from where you're sitting, but uh, I did put them in here. So he's mentioned by Jesus in reference to Israel killing the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. Now, you get a, a, a minor debate here. okay? Maybe not minor, but anyway. Um, was Jesus referring to Zechariah canonically or chronologically? And what I mean by that is in 2 Chronicles, um, there is a Zechariah son of Jehoiada. So, For the Jewish Bible, that was the last book. It wasn't Malachi. It was 2 Chronicles. So, what's often said, and I've taught this myself, is that it was from Abel to Zechariah. Abel is in Genesis 4. Zechariah in 2 Chronicles. So, from the first to the last. Or, chronologically, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, um, the problem is that Jesus actually says the son of Berechiah. Therefore, um, it would point to this Zechariah, because the son of matches. Um, so, therefore, it would be um, chronologically, not canonically, if that makes sense. Y'all with me on that? All right. So. All right. So, there's your references. Write them all down real fast. All right. So don't need to write any of them down <laughs> all right um but the, the thing is of all the ones i didn't do this in the beginning of our prophet books but for the last i don't know several weeks i've been putting these in here um this is the most we have seen yet and that's because of the messianic prophetic element in zechariah so you have this intro okay so there's a message during the construction and a message after the completion of the temple. So you have this intro, you've got eight visions, okay, four messages, and then you've got these two cycles that happen after. All right. So intro, eight visions, in and a symbolic action. So eight visions, four messages, cycle one and two. <coughs> and eight, four, two, same thing. Okay, so you want to remember eight four two. All right. In those the the night visions. Okay, so you got these eight night visions. Okay, that that come up to play here. <coughs> these visions. Go to the, I'm gonna go to the next one. Okay, you still have your eight visions here, but I'm gonna leave this up for just a minute. Okay, so then you got this idea of, of feast or fast, and the the burdens here, the two burdens that take place, and here's the, the first and the second that we were just talking about. All right, so either one, th- this or or this here, that might be clearer for you. Well, I want to go through the visions a, a little bit here, and I want to make some other uh, comments in, in the book. The idea of returning, okay, it is um, not just mentioned in verse number 3, but it's also picked up again down in verse number 16. Um, he says, I have graciously returned to Jerusalem. My house will be re- rebuilt within it, uh, says the Lord. And so God is, is returning back to the temple. Remember, he left the temple. Remember Ezekiel and all the corruption, and and we showed how he was moving out of the temple and heading east, and so he's now returned uh, to the temple with his people. And so, this, in in the first chapter, and then in the midst of these visions, that's actually in the first vision, the vision of the horsemen. So, actually, so looking at 1-7 through 6-8, okay, so this includes the, the visions. So this is from, I think this is from Gary Schnitzer, okay? And this is a chiastic structure of the, the visions of uh, the eight visions. Alright? So, the first vision is the, the vision of the horsemen who patrol the earth. And so, that's what you have up there at the top, number one, horses patrolling the earth, all the nations. <clears throat> so you look at this, and you have these these um, this patrol, if you will, going out. These different colored horses in verse 8, and then um, down in verse number uh, 11, they reported to the angel of the Lord standing among the myrtle trees, we have patrolled the earth, and right now the whole earth is calm and quiet. But what is not calm and quiet? Jerusalem is not calm and quiet. So you read this you're like, what's going on? And so there's a contrast here. um, And it's a a backwards contrast in a sense. So God's plan all along was to give Shalom, peace, to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem doesn't have it right now, but everybody else is. It's upside down and backwards. And God's going to shake that up. We have shake in in a little bit at the end of this uh, portion here. And so... That shouldn't be that his people are in turmoil and everybody else is at peace. In other words, what's that saying is they're okay with that. And they don't realize what they've done that is wrong. And so God's going to help them uh, realize that. In verse 14, he says he's extremely jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Verse 15, I am fiercely angry, angry with the nations that are at ease. Okay, peace at ease. For I was a little angry, but they made it worse. Therefore. This is what the Lord says: I have graciously returned to Jerusalem, um, rebuild my house, and then a measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. Pick back up in one with that same phrase. Uh, my cities will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will once more comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Okay, vision number one. Then he jumps into vision number two. Uh, I saw four horns. Okay, the number four has to do with completeness of totality. And so, in in verse eight, the the horsemen. Uh, There's riding on a red horse, and then behind him is a red, a and a white horse, okay? So there's four there, right? Then here we got four horns, Um, the horns that scatter Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Well, horns refer to military strength. So there's two interpretations on this. Either the four means the totality of the enemy who has scattered Judah, or the four refers literally to four, so you can go with um, Assyria, Babylon, um, Greece, persia greece right um so either those four or just the totality in general um, depending on how specific he's being so the horns of the military strength so i asked the angel um what are these and he says they're the horns that scattered judah israel and jerusalem and then he showed me four craftsmen so totality again what are they coming to do these are the horns that scattered um, judah so no one could raise his head these craftsmen have come to terrify them and cut off the horns so, cut off their what? Cut off their power. So, the craftsmen have come to cut off the power of these empires, these enemies, who have destroyed so much of God's people. Um, and so, that is the second one. The third one is the, the surveyor. The vision of a man with a measuring line in his hand who comes to, to measure Jerusalem. And so, he looks up, and he sees the measuring line, which that's a pickup from chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, to measure and determine its width and its length. Then he says in verse 5, I will be a wall of fire, and I will be the glory within it. Now, if God's going to be a wall of fire, where have you seen that before? In the desert. Yeah, right? He's a cloud by day and a fire by night, right? Um, he stands between the Egyptians and his people, right? So... There's some imagery of this in the past. Um, Get up and leave the land of the north. I have scattered you like the four winds of heaven. Uh, So here you have the the idea that um, continuing down, verse 10 and 11. 11 is an important verse. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord on that day and become my people. So many nations, okay? It's probably the the goyim. It's probably the, the pagan peoples that will become my people. I will dwell among you, and you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. I'll take possession of Judah. Okay? So Jerusalem is going to be inhabited, and the Lord will be in the midst of his people. The fourth vision and it starts in chapter 3. It's the high priest and the branch. Um, here is the vision of Joshua, the high priest, and the removal of his sin as the representative of the people. So God is going to remove their, their sin and... Joshua will rule the Lord's house and courts, and the coming of the servant of the branch, is promised. Um, Notice in verse 3, the filthy clothes, take off the filthy clothes, this all represents the sin. Um, God gives him a splendid clean robe, so, and a clean turban on his head, clothed in garments with the angel of the Lord standing nearby. So, the sin being removed, God's going to remove their sin. And then, in verse 8, 3, 8. Listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your colleagues sitting before you. Indeed, these men are a sign that I am about to bring my servant the branch. Now, um, I don't have it on the screen right now. But there's an argument from um, probably David Dorsey and some others that 3 eight is actually um, a key of the book. Let's see. The, the next slide... No, it's not that one. Um... nope all right this i'll leave this one up for a minute because the other one was was already up for a while this is the same um visions okay but it just gives the explanation instead of just having the structure for it 3 8 though is the hinge verse in this okay and what is the hinge that i'm about to bring my servant the branch well my servant should remind you of what book Isaiah. isaiah exactly and the servant songs in Isaiah there's four different sections at least that are that are referred to as the servant songs and that God is going to bring his servant and the same thing with with the branch and so um, so that's part of what's going on there as well and then in chapter uh, four so in chapter four we run into um, the lampstand okay so the angel there roused me as one awakened out of a sleep and said what do you see um, seven lamps. Seven channels for each of the lamps on top, two olive trees beside it. And so here you have this, this great light going on, and then the word comes by and says, not by strength and might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so <clears throat> um, God's power is, is going to be what enables them uh, to do this. In verse 10, it's got the seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth will rejoice when they see the plumb line. So the, the wisdom of God, the power of God, the all-knowingness of God uh, demonstrated throughout these. Um, the next one, chapter 5, um, the flying scroll, which has covenant curses on them, uh, is going to come against the covenant breakers. Verse 3 says, This is the curse that is going out over the whole land, for every thief will be removed according to what is written on one side, and to everyone who swears falsely will be removed according to what is written on the other side. I will send them out. Um, following that is the seventh vision of the woman in the basket. That's that picture you saw earlier that someone, you know, drew. That is <coughs> the wickedness symbolized by the presence of the woman is gonna be removed and sent to Shinar. Where is that? That's Babylon. So they're gonna send all this wickedness away into to Babylon and then the 8th vision of chapter 6 starting in verse 1 the four chariots, four again being all encompassing chariots being the military might coming from between two mountains and the mountains are made of bronze Um, the first chariot talks about them all three of them and these are the four spirits of heaven going out after presenting themselves to the Lord of the whole earth, so what is this? this is God's army, so finally here in the 8th vision, God's army is rolling up God's tanks are rolling out um, and he's going to do something Uh, about it. Go patrol the earth, he says, as they patrol, he summoned me, saying, see those going to the land of the north have pacified my spirit in the northern land. And so, um, what's the northern land? Well, all the the people that attack Israel, they come from the north. To the west is the Mediterranean Sea, to the east is the desert. They either come from the north or the south. And so, God is rolling out his, his, uh, his tanks, if you will, uh, to go after the ones that have um, oppressed and, and uh, wrecked Israel. And then in verse nine of following is the coming of the branch. The word of the Lord came, and uh, etc. So that's the, that's the coming of the branch there. So this here, seven one to eight twenty three picks up the next section. This is two years after chapter 1. So this is about 518 B.C. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. So that gives us our our time marker. Uh, And the question becomes, in verse number 3, should we mourn and fast in the fifth month as we have done for these many years? Well, why are they mourning in the fifth month? That's when the temple was destroyed. You'll also find that uh, in... Verse five, ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and lamented in the fifth month, that's for the temple, and in the seventh month. Why the seventh month? Well, that's when Gedaliah was was taken out, according to Jeremiah forty one, one to three, and Jeremiah twenty-five, eleven. Or Jeremiah twenty five eleven is about the next part, the seventy years. So the seventy years, did you really fast for me? So you saying you've been fasting for seventy years. Now obviously if they ate something in seventy years they'd be dead. But, so you've been in exile 70 years and you've been fasting. Were you really repentant? Do you have a repentant heart? Because they're asking, do we fast or feast? Like it said on the the diagram a minute ago, right? And so God's response in verse 6, he says, When you eat and drink, don't you eat and drink for yourselves? Aren't these the words that the Lord proclaimed? Now, this is stuff where I don't necessarily think before, but thoughts suddenly come when you eat and drink. When you eat and drink. Paul uses that phrase in the New Testament. Right? Whether you eat or drink do everything what? To the glory of God. Right? That's, that's that same beginning phrase. I you know, I didn't go check the Greek and the Hebrew on it, but like this is just sometimes when you're teaching God just does that. Um, so, that's actually the same point. Because what's God saying right here? He says when you eat and drink, don't you do it to yourselves? And so, if Paul's picking up on this passage, which it's quite possible now, there's an allusion here to that, that he's saying you do it to the glory of God, and here God's chastising them because they weren't doing it to the glory of God, they were doing it to the glory of themselves, so um, that's what he says, so then the word comes and tells them to render justice and faithful love and compassion and don't oppress etc, the things that we've seen in, this, in the prophets repeatedly, but they refuse to pay attention and they turn to the stubborn shoulder it says in verse number 11, therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts and he scattered them like a windstorm. And so in chapter 7, that's what you, you see going on there. And then uh, chapter 8 continues. <clears throat> so this is what we're looking at right here. So you see, um, the Lord denounces their ineffective fast in 7 4 to 7. Um, an earlier generation had rejected his demand for social justice. So he sent his people into exile. And so then we're going to see how he promises to dwell again in Jerusalem and bless them. To deliver them out of that exile, and so that picks up in chapter eight with the obedience and the fasting um, that is talked about there, and what God is going to um, do there. And then he continues in all the way about bottom of uh, chapter eight in verse twenty. Um, the Lord of hosts says, people will yet come, the residents of many cities, the residents of one city will go to another and say, let's go at once to plead for the Lord's favor and seek the Lord of hosts. And many people in strong nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and plead for the Lord's favor. So what's happening? Surrounding nations are then coming to Jerusalem, which has become the beacon of light and hope and the glory of God. And the nations are coming to see this, Okay. Um, like the nations came to see the glory of Solomon. But as Jesus said, one greater than Solomon is not here. And so they come to see him. In those days, ten men from nations of every language will grab the robe of a Jewish man tightly urging, uh, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. There's God is with you again. Um, And then there's also some connection here, potentially with Acts 2 and, and what happens at Pentecost. So the surrounding nations being called up. All right. So that takes us then into... Um, The next section, and the last part is uh, the part that was hard to date, is very confusing, etc., and deals a lot with some Messianic promises. And so, chapters 9 through 14, um, this is a a chiastic uh, structure related to it. This is from the um, Bible Reader's Companion, I think, that Larry Richards book again. And uh, what you have here is a chiastic structure detailing what takes place in chapters 9 and and following. And so, <clears throat> uh, the way they work is you follow, follow the chapter numbers here because it's laid out a little differently than the other uh, chiastic structures, but uh, starting with 9, obviously, and, and then finishing way over here. So, you're working your way this way, and normally we have them kind of flipped sideways instead of this way, but so this lines up with here, judgment and salvation, okay? So you work down through here, and then up here, and then you continue over through um, here. So you can see how they've kind of got them uh, put together. Now we're not going to go through um, that whole aspect, I'm going to try to wrap this up in about 5 minutes or so for 9 to 14, but this is the section that if you were looking at um, Messianic aspects that you would uh, drill down on, along with what we've already mentioned about the branch, etc. So in chapter nine, though, um, nine, uh, let's see, one through eight begins to talk about the judgment of God on His enemies. So uh, starts out first. Notice the word oracle. Okay, so you'll have oracle in nine one and in twelve one. So there's your two parts that we talked about in the very beginning. Okay. 9-1 9-1 and 12-1, the word oracle. An oracle, the word of the Lord, okay? Um, because, remember how the nations are at what right now? What? Peace, peace. yeah. The nations are at peace or at rest, which they should not be, okay? So God is going to bring some turmoil into their lives right here. Um, the word of the Lord is against the land of Hedrach. That's Syria, Damascus, okay? For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath which borders it, as well as Tyre and Sidon. So remember in the beginning the map that we, we showed you of of who God is now against. So Syria, okay, Damascus, that's up north, alright? And then we're gonna go to the west, Tyre and Sidon, okay? And then he's gonna move on down in verse five. To Ashkelon and Gaza, so that's going to be the Philistine territory okay, down here, so, so we started up north, and then we went west, and down here to the Philistine territories, alright? These are all people that were thorns in the flesh to um, the Israelites, and who oppressed them. <clears throat> and so, God is going to uh, stir up a, a movement against them, and remember, his, uh, his tanks were rolling out at the end of that other portion. And then, starting in 9, We begin with a a messianic foreshadowing here. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Zion, Jerusalem. See, your king is coming. He is righteous, victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey. Well, who says that? The Gospels do. Matthew chapter 21, verse 5, and John chapter 12, verse 15. So Jesus fulfills these, uh, pointing back to Zechariah. So now you say, how do these fit together? What is it that God's actually uh, doing? So he writes these in. Um, you know, five, 520 B.C., give or take, and Jesus comes um, about 500 years after that, and so all these promises, he's saying, what he's going to do is roll out the tanks, we're going to bring peace back, but this idea of patience we talked about, yeah, it, it's 500 years down the road. <laughs> um, I mean, he didn't tell them that, but we know now, right? So it's 500 years down the road, and so, you know, we have the same problem he says he's coming back, and we're like, yeah, it's been 2,000 years, when's that going to be? Well, they didn't know either, and it was 500 years for them, you know, from this point. So, then he says, I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the the horse from Jerusalem, the the bow of war will be removed, and he will proclaim peace to the nations, his dominion will extend from sea to sea, Euphrates River, to the ends of the earth. Euphrates River, that's all the way in Babylon, right? To the ends of the earth. In verse 13, we mention this in the dating debate, but I will, sit, I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill the bow with Ephraim. I will rouse your son Zion against your son's Greece. I will make you like a warrior's sword. Okay, so the enemies will t- be taken out, but also the uh, the messianic aspect here. In chapter 10, the restoration of God's people, um, that you'll, you'll get the rain you need in season to sustain you because God will sustain you. Then he talks about idols and false shepherds, especially chapter 11. Moving into Israel's shepherds, the good and the bad. This idea is going to be picked up by Jesus, who claims to be the good shepherd, in John chapter 10. All right? And so they're in need of uh, some shepherds that are going to guide them on the, on the right path. And then chapter 12 <coughs> starts out with the phrase oracle again. So I told you, 12 1 and 9 1, these two aspects, all right? Um, you look through chapter 12 says, I will make Jerusalem a cup that causes staggering for the people who surround the city. The siege against Jerusalem will also involve Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who try to lift it will injure themselves severely when all the nations of the earth gather against her. So, there's going to be all these nations gathering against her, but they will be hurt. On that day, verse 4, remember, on that day, and day of the Lord, and end times, those are all talking about the same time period, the earth will gather and the Lord says, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. I'll keep a watchful eye in the house of Judah, but strike all the horses of the nations with blindness. Then each of the leaders of Judah will think to himself, the residents of Jerusalem are my strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. And on that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot in a woodpile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume all the people around them on the right and on the left. So Judah's enemies will not be a problem anymore because God is going to orchestrate all of this. At the end of this portion, in chapter or verse 8, on that day the Lord will defend Jerusalem so that the one who is weakest among them will be like David on that day, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And on that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And so Angel of the Lord terminology, again, the divine warrior motif that we've mentioned or talked about, um, I think in both classes at this point, uh, is coming through here. The mourning for the pierced one and and ten and following, which is referenced in John 19, um, and also in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. They will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for a child, um, etc. These messianic prophecies again. uh, In chapter 13, Um, God's people are are cleaned up and the prophecies continue, you get over to verse 7 my shepherd against the man who was my associate related to Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and then the Lord's triumphant reign is how the book ends in chapter 14 he'll go out in verse 3 to fight against the nations as he fights on the day of battle Um, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west Forming a huge valley, so that half the mountain will move to the north and half to the south. You'll flee by my mountain valley, for the valley of the mountains will extend to Azal. And so, continue on. It ends with, On that day the words holy to the Lord will be on the bells of the horses. The pots in the house of the Lord will be like the sprinkling basins before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who has sacrificed will come and take some of the pots to cook in. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. The enemies will be taken away. God will deal with them all. The the prophecies spoken of here were to be an encouragement to the people that what looks small now, this little temple that you've reconstructed, you spent months traveling back from Persia, things look despairing, discouraging, not good. But, listen, there is much more than meets the eye. I'm doing something here, and you will see what that is going to look like. Or, if you are not around then, just know that I am going to do something spectacular. And so, that's how the, the book of Zechariah ends. Obviously, you could spend you know probably an entire semester dealing with 9 through 14 and its connections with the New Testament and Jesus and the Gospels. Um... But that's all the time we have for that today. So that's Zechariah.